Dr. Kane's been gone so long that he forgot all of our names. I'm glad he remembered my birthday. Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope you had a great vacation. He has a friend who owns a, a, a train car, a private train car. And uh, he has a, what, what's the company that pulls the train, his car? Amtrak pulls it. Amtrak pulls it, but it's his own private car, and they go all over, you know, and, and they, he had that kind of vacation this time. It was great. It's like being on the Oriental Express. Yeah. Well, our uh, study today is Psalm 61. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there, Psalm 61. You'll notice it only has eight verses. It's a short psalm. Next week has only 12 verses. And I could have combined these, but I, I didn't think that's fair to the psalmist, because the psalmist wrote them separately, so why should I combine them? Some people thought that might be a good idea. But Psalm 61 is a prayer, according to the superscription there, uh, a psalm or a prayer, a song of David. And this is a prayer that comes from the lips of David uh, when he is in a desperate time of his life. He's on the run. Now we know that when you look down at verse 2, look what he says. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. He is outside the city of Jerusalem, far away from the capital where he reigns, and uh, he's running for his life. And many commentators believe that these events, this psalm is written against the backdrop of David being in exile as a result of his son Absalom leading a coup against the government. We saw a coup against the Egyptian government this week. There was an elected president and there was a coup that took over. The people protested in the streets. That was their right. But the military, in a sense, took over the government, so we call that a military coup. And Absalom has led a coup against the throne. Now, who is Absalom? Absalom is King David's third son. Uh, David has seven wives. Most of us don't think of that. We think maybe two or three. Now, he, he'd have one every seven years or so, you know. He, he just took him on, and he had children by, I think, all of those uh, women. And the thing about this son is that this son, Absalom, is likely David's favorite son. And he's a very handsome person. And I want to show you the story, a little bit about the story, over in 2 Samuel. And this will serve as the backdrop, the historical context for Psalm 61. So go to 2 Samuel. And find verse, or chapter 14. Now I'm only going to read about five or six verses here. But this will set up the psalm and it will help the psalm make more sense to you. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 14. And when you get there, go down to verse 25. 2 Samuel 14 and verse 25. 
Now look what it says. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. Look at that. He was the handsomest man in all the nation. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now this is a handsome character. And as a result of that, everyone, when he walks by, looks at him, and they look at him a second time. Now, we don't know what David looked like. We know what his heart was like. His heart was soft toward God. But we don't know what he looked like physically, but we know what this son looked like. And the son probably got his looks from his mother, rather than from King David. So, he's not only handsome, he's the ultimate politician. Because if you look at chapter 15, look what it says. After this happened, after this happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. He had a whole entourage. Now Absalom would rise early and he would stand by the way of the gate, the city gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, what city, hey, what's up, come over here, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. He doesn't have a judge who can hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made the judge. So he's putting a thought in the people's minds. In the land. And everyone who has a suit or a cause could come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was. Whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put his hand out and take him and kiss him. That's just like a politician, isn't it? Look at that. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. They never made it to the king. They just intercepted by this politician. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now look down at verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. In other words, they're all backing him. They're in the street saying, Absalom, Absalom. See? So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. He's going to lead a coup. Make haste and depart, lest he overtake us suddenly. Lest we're overwhelmed by him suddenly. And brings disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. There is the background, at least a possible background, for Psalm 61. And it makes sense when you read Psalm 61. So turn back there. And let's find out about it. By the way, have you ever thought of what Absalom's name means? If I said Abba, you would say that means Father. Salam? Peace. <laughs> Father of peace. That's what his name means. He's anything but a peaceful person. <coughs> 
very deceptive. And he wants to kill his father, the king, usurp his authority, and take the throne. And so he's leading this coup, and David is on in a run for his life, escaping the city. So that's the picture that we're going to lay out here. Here's how we will divide the psalm. We'll divide it into two parts. Verses 1 through 4, the first half of the psalm. We're going to see David's prayer of desperation. That's verses 1 through 4, David's prayer of desperation. And then verses 5 through 8, the basis for David's prayer being answered. The basis for the answered prayer. Okay, you with me? Okay. So let's look at his prayer of desperation. Look at verse 1. Here's what he says. Now remember, if you read the superscription, this is a psalm or a song, and it's, uh, it's, these are instructions to the chief musician. It's going to be played, this song, David says, should be played in the tabernacle on a stringed instrument. So long after David writes this, this is going to be one of the songs in the hymn book of Israel that when the people gather, they will be singing. Okay? Just like we sang a song today out of a hymn book. So they had hymns that they sang, and this is going to be one of them. Okay? But it's based on this running from Absalom. So we have this prayer of desperation in the song, and it says, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. Now notice that David's prayer is characterized as a cry, which means it's a prayer of desperation. That's the first thing. Uh, it speaks of David being in a state of anguish. When you're crying, you're hurting. David is in a state of anguish, and he cries out to God. Notice, oh God, notice the emotion there. So the prayer is characterized as a cry. Now notice the two verbs. See the two verbs there? The first, hear, and the second, attend. These are commands. When you're drowning, you don't say please. You cry out, help! You see somebody on the seashore, you cry out, help! <laughs> you command them, get their attention. And the fact that he says here means that probably he has been praying before and God has been silent and he's crying out, listen to me! Trying to get God's attention because it seems like God has been ignoring him. And then he says, the second verb, attend, uh, means to consider. Consider my request and act on it. Okay? So here we're going to call this a cry of desperation. Now look at verse 2. He says this, From the end of the earth I will cry to you. Okay? So this is the where of the prayer. The where of the prayer. He's crying from the end of the earth. Now what in the world does it mean, end of the earth? The earth doesn't have an end. It's not flat and you fall off the end, like Columbus thought. So, he's not, that's not what he's talking about. It could simply mean earth in this situation, it does many times in the Old Testament, simply means the land of Israel. That's the earth, the way they talk about it. It could be he's at the extremities of the land of Israel. He's gone all the way to the edge of the borders to escape Absalom. And uh, the next step is across the borders in the pagan territory, and that's not where you want to be. So he's crying from the edge of Israel. That could be what it means, the end of the earth. Or end of the earth could be where the earth 
and the seaweed. In other words, he's up against the sea, and there's nowhere to go. He doesn't have a boat. So whatever the situation is, uh, it means he is far away from the capital city, and he's had to run, and uh, you don't have too many options. So that's the where. Okay. Now look at the when. He says, he prays, he cries out to God in verse 2, when my heart is overwhelmed. This speaks of his condition. When you're overwhelmed, it means you are helpless. Overwhelmed, you're at the end of your rope. Overwhelmed, you can't do anything on your own. You're in a state of desperation. That's the win of the prayer. This is a language that's connected to uh, the Navy and the maritime industry. It describes what happens when the boat crashes and the soldiers are in the water in the, in the drink and they're drowning and the waves are coming over them and they're overwhelmed by the waves and the sea's ready to swallow them up and they're swallowing the water and the sea's going to swallow them. It's a picture of a shipwreck. So that's his condition. And so there's this cry of desperation. So you have the, the where, the end of the earth. You have the when, when my heart is overwhelmed. Right? Look at the what, verse 2. Here's what he asked God to do. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So here imagine a sailor, the boat is, the ship is uh, sinking, the, the sailor's out in the water, he looks up and he sees a rock. <laughs> it's above him, he just can get to the rock. <laughs> He'll be safe, but he can't get to the rock because he's being overwhelmed by the waves. He's being pulled down. So he needs someone to lift him out of the water and set him on the rock that is higher than he is. Pretty interesting, isn't it? It's a tremendous word picture here. But notice that David isn't talking about a sea wreck. He hasn't been wrecked at sea. He's not talking about being overwhelmed physically. He's safe where he is. He's being pursued, but he is you know, physically healthy. Notice in the middle of verse 2 how he's overwhelmed. Look what he says. When my what is overwhelmed? My heart is overwhelmed. You see that? He's not talking about being physically overwhelmed. He's talking about his mental state. <laughs> He's talking about his emotional state. He is depressed. You've ever been overwhelmed where things just are crashing in on you? Just, you're so overwhelmed you can't even think straight. He's confused. He's depressed. He's melancholy. He is uh, without hope. He's emotionally distraught. Uh, why would he be in that condition? Well, if your son turned on you and wanted you dead, you'd be in that condition. Maybe you are in that condition. Maybe you have children that are just waiting for you to die. They don't come around normally. But boy, when you get sick and the doctors say, we don't know where they're going to make Boy, they're there. They come out of the woodwork. I was talking to somebody in my class that told me about a client that he had, and his client was not in good health, and boy, 
relatives from all over the place because the person was wealthy came out of the woodwork. And uh, just waiting, not didn't come out and say, hope you get better tomorrow. It's what they didn't say. And David is emotionally overwhelmed because he's got this son who has turned on him. That's the what of the prayer and lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There's a song that people sing, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now look at the why he makes this prayer. Why he even thinks that God's going to answer the prayer. Look at verse 3. For you have been, notice in the past, in the past when I was in a situation, you have been a shelter for me. Look what else. In the past, you have been a strong tower, a fortress from my enemy. In the past, God has protected him. In the past, God has rescued him. And if he's done it in the past, he'll what? Do it again. One of the great themes of Psalms is if he's done it in the past, he'll do it again. And I want you to know, that if, think about the situations you've been through in the past, whether it was a sickness, a financial situation, an emotional situation, a crisis in your life, and guess what? You're here today. If he's done it in the past, he'll do it again. And on that basis, that's why he feels he can make this prayer. And so, in the past, God's been a shelter for him. In the past, God's been a strong tower for him in verse 3. Now, he wants God to be his rock. Notice the rock is not a rock jetting out of the water. The rock, in this case, is a person, and he wants God his rock to take him by his hand and lift him up above the crisis that he's experienced. Now we see the result of this. Look at this. I will abide. Notice there's the future. You've done it in the past. You'll do it again. Now look at the preferred future. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. <clears throat> the tabernacle was located in Jerusalem, the capital city. He expects to return to the capital city. The tabernacle is where the presence of God was. He expects to be in God's presence. Now he's at the ends of the earth. One day he expects to be right back there in the tabernacle, right where the presence of God dwells. Notice he says, I will dwell, abide in your tabernacle forever. A lot of times in the Old Testament, the word forever just means a long time. Because David obviously isn't in the tabernacle today. In fact, the tabernacle is not even in existence. So it just means a long time, oftentimes. It's sort of a figure of speech. And then look what else he says. I will, notice in the future, I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Now in the past, he's talked about wings and he's linked them to like a mother hen who has wings that protect. But not this time. Here he says, I will dwell in your tabernacle where your presence is and I will find shelter in your wings, which probably is also a reference to the tabernacle. Remember the cherub's wings that sit over the mercy seat, and between the wings, that's where the presence of God is. And so he will trust in God, in God's presence to get him through, and he has this assurance, he has this confidence, he knows that his request is going to be answered by the time he gets to verse 4, and at the end of verse 4, he tells, in fact, it says at the end of verse 4, he tells the chief musician, uh, 
put in a little note at the end of verse 4, say love. At this point, I want everybody who's singing just to think about it. Because that's what we really need to think about. And so probably there is the music and the orchestra that plays very softly, and the people in the congregation now are just going to have this interlude of meditation where they can think about the great lesson that needs to be learned. And since this is a song that will now be sung long after David is dead and gone, other kings can sing this song too when there are people who want to overthrow them. <laughs> and we sing the song and we can apply it to our own lives today. So that's what we need to do. We need to find that lesson and we need to meditate on it. And if we had a lot of time, we could pull out all the practical implications in our own lives, but guess what? You know what the situation is in your life, and you know what the need is in your life, and God has already told you. You can trust Him, and He'll pull you through. Okay? So that's the first half of the psalm. Now we come to the basis upon which He expects the prayer to be answered. Okay? Look at verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. In the past, David has made vows. Now we've dealt with this before in the Psalms. When God established, established a covenant with Israel, uh, God made vows to the people, promises, and in turn he extracted promises. To the extent that you kept your vow, you were blessed. To the extent that you broke your vow, you were cursed. And the majority of Israel broke the vows over and over again. Saul broke the vows, Solomon broke the vows, but David says, you know, my heart has always been toward you, and I have kept the vows for you, Lord. You've heard my vows, you've heard my promises, and I've, I've kept my promises up until this point. And then he says this. He's been obedient, he's been just. He gives, mets out justice, he takes care of people. Like he promised he would. And then he says in verse 5, You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Notice that certainty. I am your child. I have an inheritance. You've given me a heritage. Uh, and it's not to me only. It's to those who fear your name. The key is those who fear your name. <clears throat> Uh, if you make a promise and you don't keep it, obviously you don't fear God. <laughs> you think you can just get away with it with impunity. David knows the seriousness of the vow, and he knows that if he keeps his vow, he receives the heritage or the blessing from keeping the vow. And not only will he receive it, all who fear God. That's the start. Fear of God. And uh, you think Absalom fears God? He doesn't fear God one whit. But David fears God, and there's a remnant of people throughout the history of the church and throughout the history of Israel that fear God, and they are the recipients of God's inheritance. So then look what it says in verse 6. And by the way, if you fear God and the commitment that you made to Christ, you're keeping it, you too are the recipient of the inheritance that God has for you. Verse 6 says, You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. 
this is true of any king. Any king that keeps these vows, any king that, that uh, fears God, will live a long life. I believe that Hezekiah probably came to that verse right there. Well, he was ready to die and he was sick. And he cried, oh God, extend my life. And God extends it. Uh, he probably knew about that verse. That you extend, you prolong the king's life. His years as many generations. Meaning, his years as many generations means that for each year that he lives, he'll do as much as some people do in a generation. And if he lives many years, he'll do as much people as, as, much as many people would, would do in many generations. Because he has God's blessing. God's for him. A lot gets done. God's against him. Very little gets done. Now, I want you to notice there's sort of a change here, though, in verse 6. Notice when he talks about the king, he talks about the king in the third person. Do you see that? You will prolong the king's life. Up until that time, he has talked in the first person. Uh, and then the second person. But now he goes to the third person. And you see that again in verse 7. He, meaning God, or the king, he, the king, shall abide before God forever. Uh, probably meaning in that tabernacle that he, that he just mentioned. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him, the king. Now why would he be speaking about himself, the king, in the third person, when all the way up through verse 5 he has spoken about himself in the first person? What's going on here? Why would he switch? That would be like me saying, you know, uh, the teacher wants to thank you for the birthday card he received. You would say, why is he talking like that? Sounds like Bob Dole when he ran for president. Remember? Bob Dole doesn't believe in you know, whatever. You say I. But suddenly we have to switch from I and me and my to the king and he. What's going on here? So I'm reading this and I'm trying to figure it out. Why would there be a switch? And I'm thinking, well, maybe what's happened is in his instructions to the chief musician. Maybe in verses 6 and 7, the choir is to sing. This is only to be sung by the choir. So, he finishes off in verse 5. Uh, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. And then the choir comes in, and here's what it says. Just imagine the entire choir starting to sing. You prolong the king's life. His years are as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. Can't you see the choir singing that about the king? And that's not the king saying it himself. So David, I could see, doing something like this. Uh, so here in verse 7, he'll abide forever, meaning for a long time, probably in the tabernacle of God. And then in into verse 7, uh, the choir probably sings prepare mercy and truth which again are covenant words uh, prepare mercy love and compassion truth keep your vows which may preserve him the king and then verse 8 goes right back to the first person again see where David now speaks 
And so here's what it says. So I will sing praise to your name forever. You see that? Uh, he says, I will sing praise to your name forever. Again, forever being a figure of speech. Because David's reign lasts about what? 40 years? So forever simply means a long time. And, uh, and then he says this. And you're going to sing your praise forever? Uh, a long time? Why? Why? Look at verse, end of verse 8. Here's the purpose that I may daily perform my vows. Do you see that? David said, I've made a vow, I've made a promise to obey you, I've made a promise to keep your law, I've made a promise to deal fairly with people, doesn't matter who they are, to met out justice without prejudice. And Lord, I'm going to just sing your praises forever so that I and perform my vows the whole time that I am king. Now, up in verse 5, vows are mentioned. In verse 5, he says, For you, O God, have what? Heard. Notice that. You've heard my vows. Look in verse 8. Perform my vows. Do you see that? In 1, God's heard his vows, and that's on the basis why his prayer is going to be answered. And now, in verse 8, he says, throughout his entire reign, he will keep his promises. He will perform the vows. So David is going to be faithful to the covenant, and this is the basis for which his prayer is answered. Does that make sense? So David knows that, yes, I'm at the end of the earth now. I've been in exile. I'm running for my life. But I'm going to come back, and I am going to be praising you. I'm going to be in your presence. It's going to be forever, and I'm going to do exactly what I have promised. So the psalm is a very interesting psalm. Now, I'll just show you one other thing about the psalm. Okay? I want you to notice how many times David says, I will. Okay. <clears throat> now look, in verse 2. I will cry to you. You see that? That's the first thing you'll do. In verse 4. I will abide in your tabernacle. Forever. Okay. Verse 4. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And then look at verse 8. I will sing praise to your name. There are four or five I wills. That's what David will do. I will do that. Okay. Now, look what God has done. Look at verse 3. You have been a shelter. You see that? A strong tower. Notice you have been a shelter. You have been a tower. Look at verse 5. You have heard my vows. Look at verse 5. You have given me the heritage. Notice what David will do and what God has done. You see that? And based on what God has done, on that basis, this is what will motivate David to do things. So we can see how that psalm all works out. And uh, whenever, whenever we are in a situation like David, whether we've been uh, betrayed by a child, and some of us have, just wants what you've got, really doesn't care about you, uh, 
whether you've had to escape, or you are escaping from a situation right now, could have been a bad marriage, or who knows what it is. Your husband's been beating you up. Or maybe he did in the past. You had to escape for your life. You had to run for your life. We have a promise here that applies as much to us as it does to David. And you can be assured that if you keep your commitment to Christ, you are an inheritor of the promises. And you will abide in His house forever. That is a promise, not only to David, but to all of us who fear the Lord. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this short psalm that's so filled with emotion and intrigue and yet resolve, solution, conclusion. And we see, Lord, how David, trusting you, a man after your heart, did all he could and there was nowhere else to go. And he never gave up until he got your attention. So you heard him and acted. Oh Lord, may us may we realize that you are the rock that is higher than we are. Help us to plant our feet on the foundation of the rock, knowing that there we are safe. In Christ's name, Amen.